I'm Michael Krasny, and I am pleased once again to welcome you to another weekly episode of the global podcast, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. We invite you to become a member of this podcast by going to graymatter.show, that's gray with an E, and to be part of a podcast known for deep dive interviews, which include your questions and comments, and cover a wide range of intellectually stimulating and engaging topics with leading national and international figures, experts, authors, artists, and opinion shapers, Interviews distinguished by high content and technical excellence. In this episode, we welcome Jane Wales, presently Vice President for Philanthropy and Social Innovation with the Aspen Institute, who served for 20 years as CEO of the World Affairs Council of San Francisco, as well as having served as CEO of the Global Philanthropy Forum. And I ought to mention that she is now heading up uh, Generosity Commission. We'll hear more about that in the course of this interview. Uh, she has also served as CEO of the Global Philanthropy Forum, and from 1993 through 1996 was part of the Clinton administration as special assistant to the president and senior director of the National Security Council and associate director for national security and international affairs with the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. She's also hosted NPR's podcast and interview show, World Affairs, and was deputy secretary of state under President Jimmy Carter. Jane Wales was educated at the Emma Willard School, Sarah Lawrence College, and the Sorbonne, and I welcome her to Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Good to see you and good to be back with you. Thank you, Michael. You know, I'm thinking in a kind of strange way here, and maybe some of our listeners may want to join in on this, but I'm keen on hearing what you have to say about it initially. I think it seems, maybe it's because I'm a tournament poker player, but I think of things in clusters, and we have sometimes clusters of world crises that seem to happen together almost. We've got three wars going on now, not only in the Middle East, obviously, but also in Ukraine and Russia and in Sudan. And I'm thinking that we've had, a, we've seen a rise certainly in autocracies. We've seen a rise in populism. I'm also thinking that maybe we're seeing a rise here in the United States and throughout the world in insistence on nationalism and sovereignty. Is that a naive view or have things escalated and been amplified to a great degree as I kind of suspect they have? I, I, I wish you were wrong, Michael, um, but unfortunately you're right. We, we have fewer wars between states uh, than, than we had before World War II, uh, but a great deal of deadly conflict within states. The big exceptions are uh, the invasion of Ukraine, um, which which runs counter to all the norms we've established in the last half century, um, and and the but the war uh, between Israel and Hamas, I think is is much more like the kinds of conflicts we're we're used to, where where folks right uh, right next door, not not uh, in Hamas is is in theory Gaza is an independent state, but a sovereign state, but. Uh, it, that's that's that messier world is is a world we we have. Um, I you've touched on something that that is a really bigger trend, and that's the trend away from what's referred to as liberal democracy. Uh, that's a democracy where you don't just get to vote; you have your individual rights protected, for example. And we have a pluralistic society in which multiple cultures can exist side by side. They can celebrate their own traditions. But they're part of a larger shared society and a shared democracy. That, that we seem to be moving away from a liberal democracy toward what is referred to as an illiberal democracy. But I'm thinking Fukuyama was dead wrong on all this. He thought, you know, the end of the Cold War would be liberalization and 
democratization all over the world, mm -hmm. and it's just almost taking a reverse course, yeah, yeah. reverse trajectory. Yeah. Well, he sounded right at the time. Well, for the time, he may have been right, yes. But uh, I can't help thinking about this in a number of different contexts. I mean, the, the audacity of Putin going into Ukraine the way he did and just completely trammeling all over their sovereignty, the audacity of Hamas on October 7th doing what it did in Israel, and now Israel, according to many lights throughout the globe, overreacting, but overreacting, and how does one measure that or quantify what that means? I just noticed, for example, let me, let's talk about the Middle East first of all, that uh, Netanyahu, who many hold culpable for overreacting, uh, has talked about a peace or at least a settlement of what to do after Gaza. And he's not talking about necessarily the sorts of things that Palestinians are talking about. Obviously, he's talking about overhauling the administrative and education systems, demilitarizing and closing the border to Egypt. But that doesn't have anything to do with another alternative state. And yet that's what we're hearing from, well, particularly from Biden and Tom Friedman and people like that. Is a, a Palestinian state really a realistic goal at this point, uh, an alternative state? Yeah, it, it appears to be, in fact, the only uh, sustainable option would be a two-state solution. But at this moment, that feels very far away. But I think if you sort of step back for a minute, you think about Israel, its creation, and the Palestinian plight. We're talking about two populations that have experienced collective trauma, and they're side by side. Obviously, the Jewish state, the is Israel, was created in response to a collective trauma um, that that is still felt uh, around the world. Um, and and Palestine are in the process. The Palestinians lost part of their homeland as well, and and they would describe or, or they, they are uh, showing the characteristics of of a traumatized public. So you've got. It's not surprising that they're having a very hard time uh, working together and finding a solution together. But the only one that seems sustainable is still the, the two-state solution. Otherwise, I mean, this is what, what you've just described as being Netanyahu's plan. That's occupation, and, and that doesn't tend to work. Two-state solution seems to many like a conundrum, though, because Gaza was deoccupied, and then it became more occupied, and became a threat to Israel, and now Hamas has become a similar threat, and Netanyahu is talking about vanquishing it, wiping it out, uh, which may be a totally unrealistic goal. Yeah, what do you yeah. think? We have not figured out, as a world, how to combat terror groups. Um, and and you know the, the solution of, of uh, overwhelming force uh, sometimes benefits that terror group. Uh, and in this case, I think you've seen uh, something particularly alarming, and that is that Israel is coming to be seen um, as as the um, as the aggressor, as the occupier, as well. Let me put it differently. Put it really harshly. We've always thought of of Israel and and those who inhabit it uh, as having been victims of genocide. And right now, in this moment, young people see them as the perpetrators of genocide. So there's sort of this uh, reframing of of what a, a once very admired state, uh, Israel, that admired democracy, seen it in uh, in a light that that couldn't have been couldn't be harsher. Yeah, the charges are in front of the International Tribunal of the Hague of genocide and uh, the charges of apartheid coming from South Africa that endured apartheid for many years. Um, how st how strong in the international sense? 
are decisions by the Hague court, or for that matter, decisions that are rendered by the United Nations. They seem both to be lacking in power, muscle, uh, strength. Or enforcement mechanisms. I mean, if you, you take yeah. a decision, then how do you, how do you make it happen? And uh, how, do you, how do you enforce them? We don't, we don't have that. So it's just, you know, it's hortatory. Hard- it's, it's, um, it, their actions may uh, attract and shape world opinion, uh, but there isn't a way to, to enforce any choices made. So I, I don't think that's Israel's biggest concern. It need, need be their biggest concern is that they be, uh, yeah, that the, the, they, that, that a decision taken by the UN or the International Criminal Court, uh, would, would, affect their capacity to operate in the ways in which they choose. I think Israel's seen the UN as being adverse to it uh, for many years now. Yeah. But what it, it, talking about different kinds of patterns, though, that we see emerging, Just one, it used to be that there was an attitude almost globally, you don't negotiate with terrorists. Hamas has been called a terrorist organization. They're holding hostages the way Iran held Americans hostages. And apparently now it's okay to negotiate with these kinds of things, with with terrorists, we've negotiated with terrorists all along. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, so this isn't new. They, um, but it 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 is the appropriate stance to take uh, it to 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 say we won't negotiate with you. But in in fact, we always have. And what can we do? Are we just standing in the face again of ineffectuality when it comes to Putin? Uh, I mean, he may have his eye on the Baltic states. Who knows what's next if he succeeds even partially? He's talking about nukes in space and all kinds of threats to us. You know, Putin's weaknesses have been revealed more than strengths. Uh, this was a massive miscalculation to go into Ukraine. Um, he, his, his reasons that I, I believe are true is that he was very concerned that Ukraine would join NATO and he would be surrounded, Russia would be surrounded uh, by by a security system that doesn't include it. The reality was that, that Ukraine was very far from being able to join NATO. And now there's no one left who doesn't think they should and, and wouldn't try to accelerate that. So in fact, Putin has created the very danger, the, the very danger he was trying to avert. Uh, it was a massive miscalculation. Um, really, really massive. That now, I think what needs to be said about this is that there, there is a risk right now, a high risk, that we will cease supporting Ukraine. And there's several reasons to avoid that. Um, the first is that what we established after World War II is that you couldn't change. You, you mustn't change uh, borders by force. If, if we allow uh, Russia to change Ukraine's borders by force, that is a walking away from a, just a central norm to which we've all agreed and from which we've all benefited. So number one. Number two is part of our power comes from the fact that we keep our promises and that decisions we take don't only take our, our own sort of uh, uh, needs uh, into and aspirations into account, but also uh, are beneficial to others. Uh, if we break our promise in, in Ukraine, uh, I, I could imagine that other nations, uh, other localities where we have promised, that we promised to protect would cease to believe it. Are the sanctions going to help because Biden wants more sanctions in the wake of the death of Alexei Navalny, and he's talking about greater sanctions, but it just seems those greater sanctions, again, are ineffectual because Russia goes and sells to 
the buyers, and the buyers are many. Yeah, um, there are more who aren't buyers than than who are, and I think it. I think the pinch is felt. But in his case, back to your earlier comments about nationalism. In his case, he's very driven by uh, a sense that Russia has been humiliated and needs to regain its its stature, and he believes this is the way to do it. Um, I, I, that drives him more than 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 the inconvenience of sanctions. What about? I mean, for years you wrestled with, and so did I, the danger of nuclear weaponry. What about the fact that he's escalating? There's escalations going on, obviously, in North Korea with missiles, Iran moving more toward nuclear armaments, probably. I mean, it's all over the world. Israel has nuclear armaments. Uh, I mean, we're, remember that at what, nine minutes to, or nine seconds, 10 seconds to on the atomic clock uh, yeah. to midnight, yeah, maybe yeah. even closer now. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary stuff. Yeah. The Iran situation, which is really particularly scary, is Iran having access to nuclear weapons because that it, it raises the prospect that the various terror groups it supports would have similar access. Uh, I, I'm not saying that's likely, but I'm saying it raises that prospect. Um, it was a choice of ours. I mean, that's what's so odd. Um, in the Obama administration, the U.S. negotiated a really good agreement, one of the best arms control agreements ever crafted uh, with Iran, in which we are we we promised to lift sanctions on on them in exchange for their dismantling what they had already and they were within months of a nuclear nuclear capability they agreed to that and not only did they agree to that and several other countries joined us in in signing that agreement um, but they actually uh, did adhere to it and that kept being verified by the international atomic agency commission so to the astonishment of, of most of the national security establishment Trump withdrew uh, from a an agreement that was benefiting everyone, uh, but I mean, you know, the whole Western world was benefiting from it. Israel would be benefiting from it. Uh, the region would be benefiting from it, and we withdrew. And now he's uh, essentially saying, if NATO doesn't pay up, someone known for stiffing others, if uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> NATO nations don't pay up, uh, he said he would encourage Putin to. This world is going out of whack in some ways. When Putin says he endorses Biden, you wonder, what is he making of that? You know, <laughs> is, he's trying to say he's on the side of democracy after he's probably no. poisoned Alexei Navalny. No, he, he's trying to say uh, you should not vote for Biden because he's our friend, so he must be terrible. Uh, an important question from Frank in Pittsburgh, and we want to get to your questions and comments here, so please feel free to join us. He wants to know if the lack of resolve in Ukraine affects it. China-Taiwan situation. Of course, absolutely. I mean, that's what I was saying. Other countries to whom we've promised to, pr to protect their, their security and their sovereignty uh, would have to have to question it if we, if we withdrew our support to it, Ukraine. China is probably watching this and was from the beginning, and the resistance is maybe giving them some pause or giving Xi some pause. But the way it seems to configure in my mind is that... Um, uh, there may be more problems in the South China Sea. Uh, Taiwan belongs to us, so eventually they're going to make a move. If they if we don't have something break out in the South China Sea, or for that matter, break out uh, in the sea surrounding Yemen. I mean, there's just stuff going on everywhere. Like I said, it clusters almost. Right. But I think that's always been true. And in fact, uh, there is more order than disorder uh, uh, than there was 50 years ago. So... 
But yeah, th th this is a scary moment because it's a moment at which we may walk away from the very systems, economic systems, security systems, et cetera, from which we have benefited uh, over decades and uh, that have brought about stability where there was disorder. Uh, so it is a, we're, we're faced with choices uh, that we don't have to make and um, they're not in our interest to make. So yes, it, it feels like a, it feels like a frightening moment. A lot of them are very grim choices at best, or dark choices, and uh, I don't even know where AI figures in all this. I've been reading some positive things about AI. We had some positive things said in podcasts we've done. Uh, Mark Andreessen, most recently, had very positive things to say. But on the other hand, there are going to be some bad actors, and those bad actors, we see what they're doing. Putin is a splendid example of that. Can we talk about Sudan, which hardly gets enough attention? I mean, it's a civil war of major humanitarian proportions in terms of the cost of lives and the, the suffering that's going on. It's, it's going on in Gaza and going on in Yemen, too, great humanitarian yes, crises. Yes. But Sudan seems to not get as much attention. Yeah, yeah. Is, it is it basically a civil war between Muslims and non-Muslims? Well, it's a civil war, and, um, and it probably breaks out even more, breaks down even more than between Muslims and non-Muslims. But yes, that's, that's a part of it. It may be that Sudan is not getting as much attention in large part because Sudan has, for now decades, uh, been the location of, of violent conflict. And it may be a sort of exhaustion on the part of the international media. We should also note that there's not much by way of international media, as, as you know. And so, you know, the networks, et cetera, cut back on their expenditures when it comes to having crews, you know, able to go around the world. Um, but I think it may be a little bit of, of fatigue. Uh, when it comes to Sudan, but that doesn't mean it's less important. Of course, it's it, it's important. I think this sort of goes back to what I was saying before. There may not be the kind of wars between states that uh, that that the world worried about in the 1940s and, and 50s. Uh, it's much about uh, internal conflict, and so um, that that unfortunately is alive and well. Well, there are a lot more uh, soldiers on the side of Ukraine and fighting for their sovereignty who happen to be of Russian background and speak Russian fluently and identify in many ways as Russian. Uh, but unfortunately, I think Putin identifies Ukraine as being part of Russia, and therein lies the conflict. Mm -hmm. Susan, uh, and thank you for the question, Susan, from Knoxville, asks about China making very deep inroads in Africa. Should this worry us? Great question, um, and and it's made you know very big expenditures. Um, it has you know built many a highway. Uh, the the African Union was was built the the the, the building for it, and Addis Ababa was was built by the Chinese. Uh, in fact, the Ethiopians say about it. They say you know Ethiopia went to sleep one night, and when they woke up, there was a twelve story building. Um, and, and there's a lot of suspicion that it's a building that may fall down, that it's not, not of the greatest quality. Um, but, but yes, lots of expenditures there. Also, frankly, sort of extractive relationships in which it's sort of in exchange for access to resources, we will do X. Um, also lots of opportunity for young Africans to go to university in China. But there's also a lot of distrust of China in Africa and sort of a sense that you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take what they're offering us now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we would, uh, you know, forever give up our, our, our minerals, et cetera. And it doesn't mean that we would, 
in, in the political sense or security sense, ally ourselves with China. Doesn't the U.S. still have a major monetary debt to China? Yep, we do. I mean, uh, you don't hear about that much anymore either, but it's extraordinary. I mean, the amount we're talking about. You know, I have to say, Michael, I have to just stop, stop for a moment. I heard your show, Forum. You were talking about Kosovo. And I remember thinking, what an interesting foreign policy expert. He's terrific. He's so thoughtful, so glad he's in the media. And, you know, assumed that your life had been dedicated uh, to foreign policy issues because your questions were so thoughtful. I met you the next day. You were interviewing the author of a book and talking about literature. And, oh, my gosh, you were brilliant there. So I just want to say I was amazed to find out you were a literature professor when here I thought you were a foreign policy expert. You always ask questions that aren't just in the headlines. So thank you. Now, remind me of your question. It's very kind of you. And I I don't like to ask you or anybody else to prognosticate or crystal ball, but it looks like Israel is going to go ahead into Rafah, and it looks like the conflict in the Sudan is going to continue, and it looks like uh, Putin is going to continue perhaps to be rapacious, not only with Ukraine, but even beyond And it's disheartening because we look for solutions. We look for ways to bring peace as opposed to all this conflict, armed conflict. How many rays of hope that occur in your analysis in any of these situations? I think a couple, but their dangers lie in in each one. Um, And that is to say, you know, that the good news is that we have established as a a large part of the world uh, a set of norms that really matter. Uh, Genocide can't be allowed to, to, to continue. Um, that is a, a, a widespread view. Uh, there's a, something called responsibility to protect, and I, I know you know what it is, but it, it is the notion that a sovereign state has an obligation to protect its citizens from uh, you know, over extraordinary harm. Uh, and, and the way it, the, the theory goes is that if, uh, the leader of a, a, of a sovereign state does not protect its citizens in that way, the rest of the world has not only a, res- uh, uh, an opportunity, uh, but a responsibility to intervene. So that basically we say Rwanda's not supposed to happen again, <laughs> not, shouldn't be allowed to happen again. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's all gone. It just means that there's a theory into which Many countries are, are uh, believe in. Uh, many NATO countries believe in. So that's the good news: is that there is a um, there are a set of norms that bring us to a better world. The second is that there's a set of institutions that bring us to a better world. That's not only NATO. It's not only the IMF. It's not only the World Bank. Um, but it's even sort of new arrangements that involve philanthropy, involve business, and involve governments. Uh, that are designed to create a better future for for lots of other countries and to address a situation like climate change. Uh, I should just digress for a moment to say, it, you know, it, it, if it isn't clear to us after the pandemic and climate change that the kinds of dangers we face uh, are ones that can't be solved by any one state alone, um, then then we're missing something very important. Um, but I would just add a little bit as a segue to philanthropy that not only can't they be solved by one state, they can't be solved by one sector. Those crises should make us aware of how mutually interdependent exactly. we are. Exactly. But to some extent, sovereignty, nationalism, populism, autocrats seem to yeah. just move o- away from yeah. that. And we're going to uh, see. We're going to see very shortly. We're going to see in our own elections. We've certainly seen in 
in Hungary, we've seen in Brazil, we've seen in many countries around the world that there is this trend toward uh, a kind of populism that is that is quite dangerous. Having said that, we should address the real issues that remain. I mean, the fact is our economy has grown incredibly. Uh, it, it is, you know, 54 years ago, it was maybe the same as the Eurozone. It's now double. Um, I mean, I think if you just you know, look around, we, we have, we have benefited. However, however, uh, while we've created great wealth, we've also concentrated great wealth and inequality is really on the rise here. It's baked in to the economic system. Addressing that is essential. It's really essential. Uh, cause you, you can't put differently. I don't think you can have a thriving democracy if you don't have a growing middle class. And so, you know, th there are, there are things we must do, but the path is is clear. Could you address just uh, in the best way you can, since you've been involved in philanthropy, the humanitarian crises? I mean, I mentioned the one in Yemen. They're throughout the African continent, but also now in, certainly in Gaza and uh, humanitarian crises all over the world still. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm looking at a question from one of our regular listeners, Reed, who says, what can be done to help loosen the wallets of the multimillionaires and billionaires in this country to redirect some of their riches to social causes, or one might add, international causes of suffering. And You know, right now, the wallets are open. Uh, and in fact, you've, you've never seen more giving. Uh, you've never seen more international giving. Um, and you've never seen more giving toward addressing such underlying problems such as inequality. Um, so that, that has expanded exponentially in the last couple of decades. Um, what has shrunk and should have our attention and has the attention of the Generosity Commission is the number of what people refer to as everyday givers. That's, that's people like us <laughs> who don't have foundations and don't have donor advised funds, but we do, you know, we do give to those in need. And, um, we also give to, to sort of causes that are more you know, esoteric. Um, but here's the problem. More money is given every year, more and more, but by fewer givers. And what does that say about us? It, you know, it certainly reflects inequality. Uh, it also reflects a shrinking middle class. Um, and it also leads us to a world where the priorities of 1% may trump the priorities of the rest of us. Um, but I think what concerns me more or what I find most striking is that more volunteer hours are donated by fewer volunteers. So if the giving trends suggest an a, a concentration of wealth, my, my question, our question is, do these volunteering trends suggest a concentration of agency? A, a middle class that believes it doesn't have a stake, it doesn't have a role, and most importantly, that it doesn't have the capability to make a difference, that's not healthy in a democracy. So we've started the Generosity Commission to better understand those trends and to see if there are ways to, in fact, help help reverse those trends. Well, a question right on point, again, from Reed, and we'll get back to international and uh, geopolitical matters in a moment. But he says, I'm not a wealthy person, but I'm doing better than many my age. How can we best make an impact giving even when giving in small amounts? Oh, I mean, let, let me just say that the everyday givers have powered uh, our civil society, uh, which has been, I should say, it's a unique characteristic. No other country has as robust a civil society, as empowered a civil society, as accepted and respected 
civil society as we have. And most, by civil society, I mean nonprofit organizations. Um, I, I can tell you that um, I was born in a public hospital. My mother's life was saved from cancer uh, as a result of philanthropy that I, I learned to swim at the, at the Jewish Community Center, even though we were Protestants. I, I mean, I can go on and on. We've all been touched uh, by nonprofit organizations, and the supporters of that are not big philanthropy. The supporters are everyday givers. It's you and me. Well said. Here's Bill from Denver, Colorado. He says the U.S. is approaching a population replacement rate that is critically low. Shouldn't we revamp our approach to immigration? What is a sustainable solution? Some thoughts yeah. from you, Jane. He's got the answer in his question. Um, we don't, we're not reproducing at a replacement rate. We're better off than China. We're better off than a lot of countries in terms of, of um, that are really uh, radically shrinking uh, population. We've been able to make up for it in large mar margin because we, we take in a million legal immigrants a year. Um, and without that, we would face the very crisis he's, he's suggesting. I mean, Bill's absolutely right. He's put his, like you, he tends to put his finger on the answer in asking the question. And, um, yeah, you know, here we are. We we sit you and I, Michael, right next to Silicon Valley. And if you look at how many companies, uh, how many new technologies have been created by immigrants to our country, and they've created jobs, they've created wealth, they've created uh, positive influence, they've better money. You know, so we we tend to be pretty open to to immigration, to legal immigration, and of course, our whole agricultural sector is is uh, completely powered by immigrants from the south of us. Well, there's an article that appeared in a recent issue, I'll give it a plug, of Politico by Alexander Ward, and he says that the present American administration, that is the Biden administration, is moving more toward a kind of neo-Trumpism, not only with immigration, you know, Biden's talking about executive orders and that sort of thing, but in every other way, uh, looking at the, he talks about Jake Sullivan, and Jake Sullivan having an attitude of shifting from the Brookings view of foreign policy. I'll just give you a little highlight of this. Globalization and free trade are not the unallied answers. Um, and democratization is not necessarily, or free markets uh, may be more important than we thought they were. Uh, and going against China, like Trump wanted to do, may be more important. In other words, you see a shift taking place here? Uh, uh, not as much as that article would suggest. Uh, I, you know, I think the only way to distinguish yourself as having a point of view is to say that the points of view that preceded you were wrong, um, even though, in fact, you've embraced most of them. So I'd say that the, the post-war order that, that we created is something, th there's no bigger defender of it than Joe Biden, right? <laughs> He's the defender of NATO. He's the defender of, of economic development assistance. He's, I mean, he's, he's, you, you can't get more of a champion than that order. But globalization, which is what I think um, Jake is focused on, yet nobody ever thought that was an unalloyed good, uh, including the Clintons who were famous for, for promoting globalization. What we, what we knew is that um, we could expand our markets dramatically to sell our goods um, uh, through globalization. And what we also, and, and we could bring in you know, BMW producing cars here rather than there. Um, but it also just acknowledged that we were in an interdependent world. I don't see Biden moving away from that. 
the difference is a small but important difference, and that's attitude toward trade. Biden is much more like um, the folks before Clinton uh, in that there's a sort of protectionist impulse, uh, always been a big part of the Democratic Party, uh, and, and it seems to have come back with him. Um, but that, I, I, I wouldn't, I'm not sure I see a, a radically different world. The one other thing I think you get out of that, that um, article, and I think this is really an important point, and that is Biden wants to say, and Jake Sullivan wants to say, we need to care about things at home. And it's great to grow the economy. It's great to grow wealth. But if the middle class is not benefiting from that, that's a problem. If inequality is growing, that's a problem. Now, I don't think Biden and Bill Clinton think differently about that. I think they see the same way. They even have some of the same solutions, uh, like promoting apprenticeships, um, you know, trying to address the education, the gap uh, when it comes to the earning power of, of those with the college education as opposed to those with not without. Um, so a lot of the solutions are the same, but greater protectionism is a difference. And you mentioned former President Clinton, who you used to work for. And I remember in an interview once, uh, he said, the, the biggest worry spots in the world are the biggest one is in the Middle East. He made no bones about that, and it was prescient and correct. But he said next to that, India-Pakistan. He said India-Pakistan yeah. worried him more, I mean, that conflict than any other place yeah. short of the Middle East. Yeah, and, that, and, and the presence of nuclear weapons on, on the South Continent is, is what well, makes it well, particularly scary. They've got nuclear weapons, and they are often at odds, and, you know, uh, there's much to fear there. I don't, I don't make this sound so grim and everything. Let me, in fact, bring it back for a moment to Africa. Alex has a question about Rwanda. He says, there's often pressure to replace President Kagame, even though he has made huge advances in the country, considering the stability issues across Africa. Should we pressure to replace effective and popular leaders with potentially less effective options? Very important question. And thank Alex for the question. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a risk associated with somebody being president for life. And I think that's the worry, is that he has, he, he, he has also taken away some rights that would allow uh, the population to to go for somebody go go for somebody else so uh yeah he made a big difference coming in uh absolutely he deserves huge credit kagami does um but one has to worry when someone is is essentially ensuring that they're in office forever but as somebody indicated in a question we just went to before china is making extraordinary inroads in africa across the continent i mean they're in, in some ways they're you know, beating our tails, so to speak, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I do think that they're making great inroads, and I'm just not sure that it, uh, that it leads to lasting geo geopolitical change. China also, according to a story I just saw today, has uh, hired an immense number of hackers. I mean, no big surprise there, but I mean, it's actually yeah. kind of become institutionalized. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of the big changes, um, you know, of the past few decades is the information revolution. And it's had a few impacts. I mean, one, uh, it, it has strengthened the hands of, of um, networks of non-state actors like Hamas, Hezbollah, et cetera, Al-Qaeda. Uh, and it has also created new opportunities for misinformation and disinformation that, in fact, weaken uh, our country. And um, and it's also created opportunity for you know cyber attacks of all sorts. 
there are some particular dangers, um, but I think uh, you know economic um, uh, sort of economic warfare is is more of what's at stake. This is e economic espionage uh, that's being uh, that is that is being conducted, and and we have a lot to see in terms of what's what's possible with artificial intelligence. Will it make us? Will we? be less able to trust information than we're able to today. And the greater the distrust, the weaker we are. Well, it just astonishes me how much the Chinese have stolen of our technology and gotten away with it uh, with impunity, for lack of a better word. Um, what, what do you see going on with Hungary and all this uh, now? Because there's an autocrat, head of state, Viktor Orban, and you know he's essentially taking Hungary in a different direction from the rest of the NATO Alliance. Yes. Uh, I, yes. I mean, it seems yes. to be sticking up for Putin. I don't know quite what to make yeah. of it. Well, I mean, these illiberal leaders um, seem to uh, seems to, to uh, ally themselves with Putin. Um, you know, Trump just recently said that if NATO members don't pony up more, don't invest more in in production of 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 their of their military capabilities, he would encourage Putin to take advantage of that and to even invade. I mean, it was an extraordinary statement to make, um, a, a foolish statement to make. But I, you know, Viktor Orban sounds a lot like that as well. Um, and, um, you know, so did Bolsonaro in Brazil. There is this, this, this rise in illiberal Democrats. Um, and it's very worrisome. Lula in Brazil has gotten into a kind of uh, hornlock with uh, Israel now. I mean, criticizing Israel very openly and so forth. Um, well, you're seeing more of that everywhere right now. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, absolutely. You know, the, uh, one other big difference with the information revolution is we didn't see the in, the what war actually feels like uh, for most of our lives, Michael. I mean, there was a time back when my father was a journalist, so I was aware of the fact that you weren't allowed to put a dead body on the front page of the New York Times. Um, that was a rule, no dead bodies. Now, we, we see horrifying, <laughs> you know, we're, 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 we're witnesses to, to the, you know, to, to, to what war can produce. Um, and I think that that very much affects our, our opinions and the way we view others. We just didn't see it before, and now we do. You get inured and anesthetized, especially when it's not happening in your own backyard, which, as you say, the United States, because of its geography, has been very fortunate in that's all those respects. Question yeah. asking you a little bit maybe to be prophetic from Shelley in Phoenix, and thanks for the question, Shelley. She says, what happens in the world if we in the United States don't support Ukraine and it loses the war to Russia? Yeah, I mean, I think we've sort of talked a little bit about that now. I think the implications of breaking promises are the implications of accepting the notion that one state can just annex portions of another. Um, that those are, you know, that that is something I think we can't afford to do. Um, so I, you know, I I I agree with with you and those callers who suggest that that there may be sort of dangers in accepting status quo when sometimes you just need to do something about it. So George Herbert Walker Bush, for example, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, how much would 
how much should that matter to us, right? Um, you know, the average American doesn't see any impact on their lives of that one decision and our decision to mobilize many other states to drive Saddam Hussein back. It was the right decision and it was the right decision because we stood up for a principle that, that gives order in this world and gives hope to Americans and, and others. Well, politics is... I think that's what's at Politics seems to be changing things, though, at least presently. I, I can't make any predictions, but a lot of the GOP and people like Tucker Carlson, who has a lot of uh, weight uh, still, despite being fired from Fox, uh, they seem to be drifting over to Putin's side, um, or at least not wanting to go up against Putin. The EU and European nations seem to feel differently, but there's a big split within our political yep. caucuses. And we'll and we'll see what that what that means. I mean, right now the majority opinion is is not with Putin, um, but yes, you're 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 pointing to something we should be concerned about. A majority opinion is probably not with Hamas either, but there's a generational shift, and it's significant in terms of its political yes impact. It's significant in many other ways yeah. as well, policy yeah. making. Second, no, when I think, yeah, I mean, you you, you think of. The, strength, the power of Israel, uh, including its reputation, its influence, but also its military power. And you think of the power of Hamas, and you think, well, wait, you know, who's David and who's Goliath here? Um, and, and I think we've always thought of Israel as David, <laughs> and that's part of the reason we're so supportive of, of Israel. But what Hamas has is, is really three things. I mean, one, it's got access to weapons because weapons are all over the place. I mean, you know, number one, we've got uh, you know, you've got uh, dual-use technology like drones um, that are commercially available. You've also got AK-47s that are commercially available. I mean, they have a lot of access to weaponry that they're using. The second thing they have, though, is access to the airwaves. And this is what I was speaking about, that, you, you know, you see the horror in Gaza. You see it on TV every day. Um, and it it can't help but uh, produce a negative effect of of, of Israel uh, and sort of sympathy uh, for Gazans um, that that may be out of whack with the political realities, but that's what we see in here. And they've got you know access to messaging apps and 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 social media, et cetera. And the third thing they have is good old fashioned tunnels, um, which you know I I don't know if you think back. To uh, to uh, to Vietnam, the Viet Cong did that too, and and are able to to uh, move about under the feet of Israeli soldiers uh, because of those tunnels, and they were able to, you know, launch operations from there to store food, store munitions, and even put hostages. You know, so they have some advantages in this world that affects uh, affect opinion and. That's that's going to matter for Israel over the long term. How can anybody with a good heart uh, withstand seeing children killed in large numbers? Uh, I mean, that's the reality of Gaza. Same time, you know, Hamas is using children as and civilians yes. as shields, and it's it's terribly complicated. Where would you put the weight in that ongoing crisis? I mean, freeing the hostages, or you know, continuing the siege into Rafah and beyond, for that matter. I think continuing the siege is, is, has ceased to work for Israel. I think it's, it's now, you know, they, they, Israel has shown its might, but, 
Um, I, you started out this conversation with some reference to um, uh, to sort of the overwhelming military force uh, that that Israel was is able to bring. In in some ways, I felt that Hamas kind of created that trap for us, uh, created that trap for Israel, and Israel walked right into it because uh, a natural response to what happened on October seven, a completely natural response is to use overwhelming force. But it is the very fact of the overwhelming force that is moving public sympathies um, away from Israel and toward the Palestinians, or toward Hamas. I, I don't know if it's... I, I, I think differentiating between the Palestinians and Hamas is, is pretty hard for for the rest of us. Um, it's... Uh, so, so I think that the... While, while public opinion would not be with Hamas, it's with the Palestinians. And so, uh, global public opinion. So I think we've kind of, they, this is back to, to my sense that we actually don't know how to fight terrorism militarily, um, that it involves uh, something more, something different than just military force. You think global opinion is against Putin and with uh, Zelensky in Ukraine for the most part? That's an interesting question. Um, I, I don't know global. Let me just sort of say that that certainly the Western world is clear. Yes, you know the Western world has signed on to um, this notion that you can't just go invading your neighbors. It's generally accepted that Putin was behind the death of Navalny. He didn't get him the first time, so he got him yeah. up in the Arctic and near where he was in that yeah. gulag. Um, how does that change? I mean, may change some things internally with Russia coming up on election, though that was a foregone conclusion, how that election would essentially turn and, and how it will turn out. But world opinion must weigh in here, doesn't it? Yes. Um, I mean, I'm not sure it moves Putin um, because this is, Navalny's not the only case. Um, Putin's got a pretty bad, a pretty consistent track record of being willing to And this kill, is Putin's war, uh, by the way. And, and Navalny was opposed to it, so there's that as well. Yeah, there's that as well. But, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've recently read, and I hope this is not true, but I've recently read that the response within Russia has been fairly passive. That is to say that folks expected this, um, can see all the risks associated with standing up to Putin, um, and so you haven't had this kind of massive movement that you would expect and hope for in the face of these kinds of, uh, you know, these kinds of criminal acts by a state. Question comes from Tom in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for the question, Tom. He wants to know, what's the difference between how Israel reacted to Hamas and how the U.S. reacted to 9-11? The U.S. was far less proportionate than Israel by every measure. It depends whether you count. Iraq, the invasion of Iraq as, as a reaction to 9-11. Um, it, 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 our, our actions in Iraq were similarly, um, you know, they, they, they weren't supportable, they weren't wise, they didn't help us <laughs> in the end. I mean, just to be really, really tough. I'm being remarkably opinionated this morning, Michael. Is this, is good, it suits you. My coffee? Right. I don't. You, have, you have the knowledge to afford to be opinionated. So, but but our reaction to 9-11, you know, originally was a good one. I mean, George W. Bush took his time to think through what were the sources of that attack um, and then uh, went to where the source was, to Afghanistan, 
um, and and had much of the world with him uh, because he wasn't being rash or just sort of, you know, being a superpower thrashing about looking for, for an enemy. The invasion of Iraq is inexplicable, <laughs> in my view. Um, and while I don't think the argument within the administration was that Iraq was in any way involved in 9-11, I do believe that there was a kind of a permissive um, atmosphere on Capitol Hill that, that sort of wouldn't, wouldn't have been there if it weren't for 9-11. There was sort of an openness to the use of force in the Muslim world after 9-11, but it wasn't a, you know, here, direct line, here's my logic. Um, and in fact, they, ne you know, the Bush administration never argued that Iraq had anything to do with 9-11. They, they argued that it was obtaining nuclear capability, which it wasn't. It seemed almost implicit, that though, was there. going into Iraq. It was uh, Kuwait originally, as you said, but then the Bush administration uh, wanted to right the wrongs. I mean, I think about Maureen Dowd's column about this and son-father mm -hmm. Oedipal complex or whatever was going on. But right. Tom's question right. raises another one in my mind. A lot of the defenders of Israel have been saying, you know, they're fighting essentially a, a force that wants to destroy them the way, let's say, the West fought against Nazis. And there's terrible collateral damage and suffering that goes on when you fight against those kind of forces. I mean, it's an easy argument, but nevertheless, one that has been tendered and one that will continue to be tendered. Since we brought up Iraq and Afghanistan, though, I wanted to ask you, you know, we went in there supposedly to, to Afghanistan, they supposedly to fight the Taliban. Taliban are in charge now. I mean, they're, <laughs> I don't mean to make light of this. Um, it's, mm. it's ironic in so many different ways. Uh, can't even be yeah. assessed how yeah. ironic it is. Um, should we have pulled out completely? Withdrawing is one thing. Withdrawing in such a messy way is another. Um, and, I mean, Vietnam felt like that when we withdrew. I mean, remember that, oh, my God, abandoning allies and within and just taking off. Um, I, I don't have the answer as to how you withdraw, but, but that's not it. <laughs> I tell you that. In terms of long-term strategy, I'm not sure that Afghanistan... Uh, will have to play the, the central role. I mean, you have to think about that. Afghanistan's been a very interesting case study over now centuries. Um, you know, great, great, uh, great nations have, have been, you know, have, have failed, uh, in their efforts to tame Afghanistan, starting with the Soviets in 1979. We're not starting with them. I mean, you know, most recently the Soviets long before and then, the Soviets, and then yeah. us. Yeah, long yeah. before. Well, it's, it's it's yeah. another though reminder that weak nations can bring you to the your knees in some ways more than strong nations. Can. It seemed like we were trying nation building there, even though George Bush said otherwise, uh, and that failed. Well, we don't know how to do yeah. it. We don't know how to do it. What we were, were really good at. I mean, if you look at the post World War II, I keep going back to my parents' generation. Um, you know, we rebuilt Europe in a really intelligent way. The Marshall Plan was smart. Uh, the creation of the World Bank for, for the rest of the world was smart. Um, NATO couldn't have been smarter. But, I mean, let me, let me go to a hobby horse of mine, and that is that um, the expansion of NATO was not necessarily as wisely done. Let me just sort of say a word about it. What NATO was about in the 40s and 50s was about taking a vanquished nation, that is to say Germany, and embedding it in a wider security uh, order 
so that it would have more in common with us. It, its interests would be more in common with ours than in, in conflict with ours. It was brilliant. Uh, then folks argued for doing the same thing at the end of the Cold War, but, in, but we didn't do the same thing. We didn't invite Russia in uh, the way we invited Germany in so that Russia would have more in common with us than in conflict. When Russia was intent on being a democracy, remember that brief period, it was serious about democracy. We didn't do that. Instead, we <laughs> said, you're not welcome. We're going to build it around you. Well, you know, <laughs> well, less, less wise. When you're, going to mim when you're going to imitate an old plan, try to stick to the but plan. But it highlights to a great degree how, much, how important leadership is. You had Gorbachev. And that made the world a difference in Perestroika and Glasnost. Uh, and now you mm -hmm. have essentially mm -hmm. an autocrat, someone whom our former president admires mm -hmm. enormously and probably patterns mm -hmm. himself in some ways after. Um, this, is, uh, this is where we're at. I don't want to make this American-centric, but um, what do we do about Putin? I mean, realistically, he's got all the nukes. I mean, not all of them, but he's got a heavy load of them, a heavier load than almost any other country, including our own. And as you know, I was involved with that, and so it's uh, painful. Um, yeah, he has all the nukes, but, but we are the ones that um, located all the um, nuclear weapons technology and material throughout the Soviet Union and brought it into Russia. We're the ones that measured it, weighed it, um, secured it. Uh, we know certainly as much, if not more, about it than, than they do themselves. Um, I'm not as worried as it being an irresponsible nuclear steward um, than some, but I, you know, I, think, I think Putin likes to have the threat out there. Um, he's, you know, he's, a, he's a bully. He, he likes to threaten. And, and I'm, you know, he actually went through with his threats with Ukraine, but a lot of his threats are just empty threats. Well, he's talking about now moving the nukes into space, and that raises a whole different dimension, doesn't it? Yeah. But think, think about whether he can afford to do that. Yeah. I mean, can he afford to have a world in which space has been nuclearized? And the answer is no. Do you think, is there a new geopolitical alliance? Um, by that I mean, <laughs> it seems to me that China and Russia, back to the old Sino-Soviet alliance, seems to be in place once again. North Korea, Iran seem to be part of that. Um, going against the Western world of democracy and the West in general. I think the only, well, yes. Um, and certainly the Biden administration thinks that way. I mean, they're particularly concerned about China. Um, they are quite serious about doing real business with Iran ultimately. In other words, they've revived efforts to, um, to, contain, to, to end its nuclear program. Um, I, I'm not a big defender of Iran, <laughs> so don't get me wrong, but it is a coherent state, and it's state failure that worries us most in that region. Um, Yemen is scary. Syria is scary. Uh, the rise of Hezbollah and Gaza, you know, and the Houthis and, you know, the sort of general troublemakers and to the point of the horrible events of October 7. Um, yes, Iran supports them. It doesn't direct them. Um, it's, uh, you know, so it's a bad actor, but it is a coherent state with 
um, some of the aspirations of a coherent state. But China, China worries this administration a, a little more than, I mean, it, so, so it's the first time in my lifetime and yours, Michael, that we've been up against a, a rival who rivals us militarily. China does this now as serious military power, who rivals us politically, I mean, economically. Um, it is growing into an economic force, although lately not so, not so much. Um, and then, then, but it's also a rival culturally. We don't have any others like that. You know, J Japan was a cultural, uh, an economic and cultural rival, but, but not a military rival. If you go through each of them, you don't have that combination. So I think it's that fact, um, that, that, uh, in part that, that drives this administration to be particularly concerned about China. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't know what kind of influence, uh, Iran can have to turn things around with the Houthis or with Hezbollah. I mean, they seem to be uh, in control, but how much that control really is exercised is very hard to say. These are autonomous groups in many respects. Uh, a couple quick questions before we have to depart and say goodbye. Uh, Joe from Miami, Florida says, it could be argued that India is partially propping up Russia with oil purchases. Should the U.S. view India as a partner? No, yes and no. I mean, it, 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 I mean, it, it is a partner in so much, uh, but but yes, they don't just do what we say, and I think there's more and more of that going around, and uh, I think it will be an even larger problem if we break our promises. That sense of you know why should we follow what you say if you're going to pull the rug out from under us in other in other settings? Indeed, and uh, should we allow Somaliland to build their own country? Well, I don't think it's up to us. I'm not sure we have that choice. It's up to them. Jane, always a delight and always enlightening to talk to you. So I thank you. And before I uh, conclude here, I want to thank all who joined us for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny podcast. And thanks to all who will be listening or have listened on Apple, Spotify, or graymatter.show, where we urge you, if you haven't yet done so, to go and become a member and supporter of this podcast. That's Gray with an E. I want to hear your thoughts and recommendations and remind you that you can send them to me at mkrasny, that's K-R-A-S-N-Y, at graymatter.show. And a special plug uh, on earlier podcasts that you may want to avail yourself of related to today's conversation with Jane Wales. Uh, Janine Zakaria of Stanford and also Jerusalem uh, Bureau Chief for the Washington Post was our 37th podcast. Look back at these with a good deal of pride. Daniel Soketch of the New Israel Fund was our uh, 67th podcast, and Amachai Magan of Stanford, our 55th, discussing the Middle East. Had Norman Solomon with us for the 53rd podcast, talking about his book, The War Made Invisible. And a plug to a couple other earlier podcasts, Jim Fellows uh, was our 39th podcast. We talked a lot about China with him. Orville Schell, our 34th podcast, and we talked also a good deal about China with him, one of the world's foremost China experts. And Richard Haas, the President Emeritus of the World Affairs Council, is podcast number three, and one of the world's foremost experts on democracy, Larry Diamond, was our podcast number two. So they continue, and we want to continue having you with us, and we thank you for your support. Thank you also to the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Chad, Colin, Jeff, and Colleen, and a special thanks to this week's guest, Jane Wells of the Aspen Institute. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by 
cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.